Welcome to the Women of TBC podcast. You'll hear content from women's Bible studies and other women's events. For more information, visit templebiblechurch.org. Good to see everyone. Oh, well, as Amy kind of alluded to, um, almost 48 years ago, that was me. Now listen, I got married in Alabama, but he is not my cousin, and I will maintain that forever. And he's also a little bit older than me, so I'm very, very young. As you can see, I had color in my hair back then. I mean, there's a lot of things different. But um, these little letters here, H-D-I-L-T, I had those engraved on my husband's wedding band. Um, it was a vow of my everlasting love, and I chose that so that when he was in doubt, all he'd have to look was to those little words, how do I love thee, that I really did love him. And in marriages that last almost 50 years, there's going to be some times of doubt for both parties. Elizabeth Barrett Browning's love sonnet seemed to be the perfect expression of my vows of love to my husband. How do I love thee? She continues with her sonnet, How do I love thee? Let me count the ways. Now, wait a minute. I know you did not sign up for poetry one on one, 101 this morning, so that's not what we're going to do. But I'm going to tell you, there is poetry in our prophet. Micah this morning, and a proposal, a rich and beautiful proposal that can be found through all the pages of the Old Testament. God's love for his people has always been present, and the revelation of that love is unfolding in a variety of voices throughout the Bible. His revelation of love to us began in Genesis 3. And if you'll remember, in Genesis 3, the human race was plunged into alienation and death immediately after the fall. Gradually, God began to reveal his loving plan more and more throughout the Old Testament until the fullness of time when Christ was born and his ultimate return for his bride. His words in the Old Testament are an intended expression of his commitment to us to win not only our faith and trust in him, but to also increase our lasting devotion to him, to our beloved. It is God's How Do I Love Thee, written not on a ring of gold, but on our hearts. A theme we've understood throughout our study of the prophets this far is seeing how God's people, the Israelites, were taught about his love. He clearly laid out his expectations for them as his people. He clearly showed them his holiness and his desire that they might be holy as well. And we witnessed with sadness each time their abject denial of his love through repeated and unrepented sin over and over again. They clearly had responded in a, yes, we will love you. Yes, we will obey you. But now the prophets preaching along with the vivid and often intense demonstrations that we've seen in Jonah and Hosea, those demonstrations of God's desires, even his, thus, their thus saith the Lord, from God's mouth literally to their ear, it wasn't enough. 
They continued to do as they pleased. Their sins were obvious and are obvious to us in the here and now. We can plainly see their continued practice of mocking God through their false religiosity and veiled devotion. The Israelites had been operating out of their flesh, not their hearts, doing as they desired and only giving lip service to God. Undoubtedly, their hearts were not desiring to please God, to venerate him as Lord and to live holy and only unto him. But because God is God, he will not settle for being anything less than God, especially to those who have called on his name. God will only settle for a relationship that is primary, mutual, and characterized by complete faithfulness and love. In our study of Micah today, we're going to go directly to chapter 6. It opens in what seems to be a courtroom scene in 6-1. The Lord of hosts tells his people, defend your actions of hate against him. Defend your disobedience. Plead your case here among my majestic creation of the mountains. Let, the hill, let them, let the hills hear your complaint. Again, I loved this poetic picture. And I love, too, that Nancy mentioned it. The majesty, faithfully solid mountains being a witness against the Israelites. God's creation speaks loudly on behalf of the Creator. God himself, the primary witness, steps into the scene as the rejected and spurned lover in Micah 3, and 6, Chapter 6, 3 through 6. He goes on to say, Oh, my people, what have I done to you? How have I harmed you? What awful thing did I do that caused you to spurn my affections and advances? In what ways have I wearied you? Why are you so cold, so unresponsive toward me? All these things I have done for you, and yet you respond with apathy and neglect. I rescued you. You were living in the dark prison of slavery in Egypt. I heard your cry. I heard your despair, your grief, your loss, and I came to you. And I gave you prophets to lead and instruct you and teach you my ways. Those prophets were Moses and Aaron and Miriam, and I delivered you out of Balak's hand. O oh, my people, remember what Balak the king of Moab devised. And what Balaam, uh, the son of Beor, answered him. And what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, to Gilgal, that you might know the righteous acts of the Lord. Now, did you hear that? Have you forgotten all the good I've done? The righteous acts of the Lord? Okay, Israel, let's uh, start earlier than today. How about that rescue from Egypt? Your cries of despair, the deliverance, that's redemption language. But in reading all that, I had a question. What's up with Shittim and Gilgal? I just had to know. Well, Shittim was the final campground of Israel on the end of their wilderness journey after they left Egypt. Gilgal, now right across the Jordan River, you see that, is the first place Israel stayed after they crossed the Jordan into the Promised Land. They were one river away from their Promised Land. Now think about it. This short journey is a demonstration of the disobedience and unfaithfulness of Israel, contrasted with the faithfulness of God who blesses Israel and fulfills all of his covenant promises. While in Shittim, a battle took place. It was a spiritual nature 
Balak, king of Moab, was afraid of Israel because of what they had done in defeating the other kings along the way, rightly so. So Balak summons the prophet Balaam, you kind of remember this story, I'm sure, to curse the people of Israel. Now on the way, Balaam is berated by his donkey who sees, before Balaam does, the angel that God sends to block their way. Three times, from three different vantage points, Balaam attempts to pronounce curses. Each time, Balaam issues blessings instead. Israel is blessed and untouchable by curses because the Lord has declared them to be blessed and no one could declare otherwise. Not even Balaam. But it doesn't end there. While Israel was staying in Shittim, getting ready to cross the Jordan to that final promised land, the men there began to indulge in sexual immorality with the Moabite women. Um, They had also invited them to sacrifice to their gods. So the people ate the sacrificial meal. They bowed down before these gods, and Israel yoked themselves once again to Baal of Peor. And the Lord's anger burned against them and showed itself in a plague that began to strike down thousands in Israel and seemed if it would continue until the whole nation might be consumed. In a wild display, though, of blatant mockery, an Israelite man publicly takes a Midianite woman into his tent with his family. Phineas kills them both with a spear, running it through both the man and the woman, but stopping the plague that had been raging and killed 24,000 people that day. This was a tough day for the Israelites. But ultimately, see, we see that they were still not wholly devoted to God, But God remained wholly devoted to his chosen people. These two geographic locations, we get to understand a little better. The problems which Israel faced in her history were not because the enemies of Israel were stronger than she was, but rather Israel was her own worst enemy. The Israelites, craving to do as they desired, was proved stronger than their true enemies. Now I just want to get personal. We're the same way. When we're sinning, it feels so right. It usually feels very good just for the moment. It feels so strong. We put it way up there like food and water. I got to do this. It's so powerful and controlling. And it's stronger than any human enemy. Sin presents itself with an ultimatum of life and death. And we can identify it. We just ask this one little question. I must have blank or I will die. What do you got to have? Now, don't just think. Come in here. Come in here. Listen. Don't just think that I am talking about those poor, those poor, poor Israelites. They just can't get it right. No, I want to challenge you. Go stand in front of a mirror and say that to the person standing there. Because that's us. That's who we are. And full disclosure, I am a sinner. And I sin because I am a sinner. Most times, my actions and my thoughts, I am demonstrating that I don't know who I profess to love. And when I sin, it's because I want to. Nobody's holding a gun to my head. We learned for our Roman study that the dominion of sin has been broken by the death and the resurrection of Christ. But the power of sin remains. And I must fight it. I cannot simply overlook it. 
thinking that God might give me a little wink, wink, and look the other way. I got to discipline myself for godliness every day. Dane Ortland, in his book, Deeper, described growing in Christ like this. To grow as a disciple of Christ is to collapse into Christ as your life. I love that. He wants total abandon to his purpose in our lives. That is why the Holy Spirit dwells within me. He empowers me to step into, listen, this terrifying freedom of single-minded allegiance to Jesus. All those words together, those are heavy, packed words, single-minded allegiance, collapsing into Christ. Give that some thought. Um, See how you feel about it. It may not feel good when you first think about it because you feel like you're abandoning yourself, but that's, that's what living in Christ is, abandoning ourselves. Like the Israelites, I've got to remember I am his chosen child. And like the Israelites, I can choose to be in God's plan for me, which is living in obedience to his written word. If I had it, I'd hold it up. Or I can just continue to live and stay on my own wandering path. In the longest journey of their lives, 40 years, to the shortest journey just across the Jordan River, God demonstrates to them, the Israelites, that he is their God who keeps his covenant promises. This journey from Shittim to Gilgal is the journey from the outside of Canaan to the inside of Canaan. God's promises don't change. They always carry with them the ultimate fulfillment. God's people receive the promise of new land and a new relationship with God the moment, hear me, the moment they left Egypt. The exodus from Egypt is the salvation event of the Old Testament. Salvation was leaving Egypt. But for God's people, it didn't all come together until they crossed over that Jordan River from Shittim to Gilgal. I want you to see that parallel. I even put a question on there. These questions that I put on there, you know, they may be things that you go home and you think about. Um, they're, they're not fill in the blank. I want you to give those, those things some thought. Now back to our regularly scheduled program. You remember we left off at Micah 6, 5. Oh, my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him, and what happened from Shittim till Gilgal, that you might know the righteous acts of the Lord. We're going to pick up right here, Micah 6, 6 and 7. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Micah 6 and 7 says, Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn in transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? The people responded to God with sarcasm. You can hear that, can't you? Bitterness and resentment, you see it. What can we do? Are you going to be pleased, God, with all these burnt offerings? Should I just sacrifice my child? I mean, what do you want? What do you want from me, God? I mean, haven't we all been in that place? I have. And I've asked that question. I've sinned. I've sinned before God. I've totally blown it according to God's law. But I shake my tiny little fist up at him. And I get angry because life is not going my way because of my own sin. But I'm blaming him. 
God has never left you or me without knowing what he wants from us. He hasn't said, hey, go figure it out on your own. And when you do, come back. No. Repeatedly, he has told us in his word how to live before him. And you don't even have to remember it. He wrote it down. All you have to do is read it. He has told us that if we seek him, we will find him. He has told us that all we need to know for life and godliness is in that book, the Bible. He himself has provided peace for us and is our peace. And he will never leave nor forsake us. Yet, we continue to offer what he doesn't accept. And we get angry at him for not accepting our good works, our offerings of service. That should remind you of Cain and Abel. That should remind you of past Bible studies that we have, connecting those dots, prophets, kings, Jewish leaders. God desires a contrite heart, a pliable heart that might be written on. Again, don't look at the Israelites and feel sorry for them in pity or disdain. Look at yourself and lift your hands to God in contrition and shout, that is me. Now we're going to get to where we're going here in Micah 6, 8. And this is a very familiar passage, loved and quoted by, well, everyone, notably Amy, but it even graces the walls of the Library of Congress. He has told you, O oh man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. As I read and studied this passage, I couldn't help but be drawn back to a recent study that we did um, on the Sermon on the Mount. And the parallel I see is within the latter part of Micah 6, 8, the part about walking humbly with your God. How exactly do you walk humbly with God? Well, now what I want to do is I want to work this passage backwards. So um, we're going to start there. And I'm going to tell you, I love the Sermon on the Mount. I think it's just the most amazing um, words that God put out to uh, start the beginning of something great. It's life and world-changing, that sermon is, Matthew 6, 7, and 8. He's inviting us to live differently, to be a part of a different kingdom, his kingdom. So when Jesus begins in the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He's not saying that you don't have to have any money or that you have to be homeless to go to heaven. Poverty here is the poor in spirit, which is humility. We initially don't like the way that sounds because nobody wants to be impoverished. But this poverty, this poorness, we want this. It's, it's a poverty of yourself and your inabilities to be your own savior. It's important that you see that. Because you're blessed in your humility. You're blessed in the humility of knowing that you can't help yourself. You are blessed knowing that you need a Savior. Walking humbly with God is knowing that you possess an impoverished spirit and are in need of a wealthy Savior, rich in mercy and forgiveness. So how do we walk? We let him in. We let him into our life. We set our mind above on him. We follow him. We sit with him. We listen to him through his word. We follow his example of living in this world. We forgive others. We love people unconditionally. And we live to him and to him. In him we live and move and have our being. Cultivating our walk with God provides the power and passion for us to fully engage 
It grounds everything else we do. Salvation in Christ is the foundation for everything else. It's how we learn to love kindness. So we start by being poor in spirit, by walking humbly with our God, bringing us to this second requirement, to love kindness, to love it. To love it is that it becomes your default. You do it. It's who you are. It's who you desire to become. We don't live in a vacuum in community. We were created to be with one another. It's not good for us to be alone. Somebody great said that right before creating Eve for Adam. We are meant to be in relationship, but not only with God, but with one another. And not just any kind of relationship, but a relationship built on love and kindness. Our words, our actions, they're always planting seeds. But what kind of seeds? What are you sowing? Seeds of discontentment, of judgment, of ridicule, hatred, division? Or seeds of kindness? Loving to do good for your neighbor is to love kindness. Your neighbor isn't lovable? Deny what you want to do. It's not enough to say you love God and yet simply tolerate your neighbor. And I'm not necessarily talking about your um, brick-and-mortar neighbor. Your closest neighbor are the people within your home, within your family group. Those are, that's your first neighbor. Again, you will notice that there are verbs attached to each one of these things. Walk, love, and do. Do you struggle with doing justice? This is our last one. I sure do. I'm never sure what it means in the context of what God said to do. Have I done it this week? Well, if I have, did I do it well? What did it look like? Um, now, I'm sure these images evoke a lot of thoughts of justice. Everybody's trying to do it. So often this verse has been believed to be about justice within society Racial discrimination, court policies, policing problems, slogans of the age, you know. But maybe as a believer, I've got to look at it with an eye to my living as Christ lived. I have to go back to the Sermon on the Mount. I have to read in the scriptures, and I have to see who Christ hung out with in the pages of scripture, and especially in the gospels. I'm going to discover, and I'm going to see that Jesus was moving and touching the outcast, eating with the sinner, embracing those that no one embraces, the beggar, the irrational, out-of-his-mind guy who's dirty and naked, the Gentile woman who was unclean for 12 years with a constant period. Am I loving them? Am I loving those people, we like to call them? I've come to the conclusion that if I'm going to live according to God's word for justice, I must treat others fairly. I must stand up for those that are discriminated against, for the weak, the poor, the needy, the afflicted. I cannot condemn a person simply because of where they were born or what they look like. But here's the thing about doing justice. It's muddled. It's so complicated. Good, faithful Christians can disagree about how to create a more just society. We can disagree about what issues are most pressing. And we can disagree about how to approach these issues. Justice work is messy. And because of that, we can be tempted to ignore it altogether. But we can't. Where we must agree as believers is that the Lord requires it. The Lord requires us to do justice, period. And what I think doing justice means boils, boils down to is simply that we care about people that most others don't. We care about the least of these. 
as Jesus called them. Now, I started walking, started this with walking humbly with God, because if you aren't walking humbly with God, the other two prescriptives really don't even matter. You're just being a good citizen. Well, which you should be. But being a good citizen is only any good if she, if we know a God of unfathomable love, because his love changes everything. His word changes everything. None of these three things that the Lord requires are any less important than the other. In other words, we all need, they all need and feed one another. Spending a lot of time alone with God but not with others leads to selfish spirituality. Spending time loving others without being alone with God leads to frustrated, resentful love. Spending time with God and with one another without considering the needs of the poor leads to an insulated life with our heads in the sand rather than focusing on the needs of the less fortunate. And God didn't require all three of these things to make life more challenging for us. Instead, it is to make us aware that we need him even more. They needed, we need a savior. Man cannot meet God's expectations. But God promised to meet his own expectations, and he did it by sending his perfect son, the Messiah, one that would rule in justice. He shall judge between many peoples, and he shall decide for the strong nations far away, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall there be war anymore. He would show mercy. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. So precious. He will cast our sins into the depths of the sea. He would lead them in the ways of God. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. I began this talk by talking about marriage, about wedding rings, about a love poem. Our marriage feast has yet to take place. Our king reigns in heaven and in giving us his robes of righteousness has pledged himself to us by his faithful promises and his covenant vows. And we're waiting for his final and glorious return when we will consummate our marriage. His love for us cannot be broken by sin, tarnished by idols, and denied because of our infidelity. He loves us. And as the ring symbolizes non-ending, infinite love, it is with this everlasting love, eternal and timeless love, that he first loved us. It can't be said enough. He is our one love. And the question cannot be asked enough, how do I love thee? How do I love thee? Let me count the ways. I love thee to the depth and the breadth and the height my soul can reach when feeling out of sight for the ends of being an ideal grace. I love thee to the level of every day's most quiet need by sun and candlelight. I love thee freely as men strive for right. I love thee purely as they turn from praise. I love thee with the passion put to use in my old griefs and with my childhood's faith. I love thee with the love I seem to lose with my lost saints. I love thee with the breath, smiles, tears, all of my life. And if God choose, I shall love thee better after death. Lord Jesus, in your word, you have said how much you love us. You have showed us your ways. You have given us a prophet with a name that said, Who is a God like you? And that's the question. Who is a God like you? 
forgives our sins, heals our diseases, and loves us with a love that never lets go. We say this morning, we love you. We say thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for all the demonstrations throughout your word of your love for us. So we go forward today out of this with those thoughts. Who is a God like you? Lord, we worship you. We lift our hands up to you in holy majesty because of who you are and what you have done already and look forward in expectation to what you're going to do. And it's in his name we pray.